0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: G'day, I'm Stephen Schubert bringing you Country Breakfast from our studio in Alice Springs this week. Today we'll head to the US where communities along a once wild river are at loggerheads as the mighty Colorado River drops to levels never seen before. And it's revealing all sorts of surprises.
2: As the water levels go down to levels they haven't been at since before it was flooded or since it was being flooded, uh, the secrets, as I call it, the secrets of the river are emerging. And those include several bodies.
1: That's coming up, but first, let's get the latest in rural news from right around the country with Serena Locke. Serena, good morning. Welcome aboard the Good Ship Country Breakfast, Stephen. Thank you. It is great to be here. And if you've done any fresh food shopping recently, Serena, you might not be surprised to learn that the value of Australian farm production and exports as well continues to climb. They're enjoying both strong demand overseas and great seasons. Yes,
3: and this is the first time the value of Australia's food and fibre exports is expected to exceed $70 billion this year. It is, as you say, mainly down to the good weather and high prices for produce. But we're warned that we could see a softening of agricultural value because there are high fertiliser prices, a shortage of workers and a slowing global economy. Jared Greenville of the Australian Bureau of Agricultural Resource Economics and Sciences, ABARES, as it's affectionately known, acknowledges the wet summer forecast this year again will hamper the harvest, but exports are forecast to be 50% higher than 10 years ago.
4: Our exports are set to hit a record value, um, rise by 5% on what we saw last year, up to $70.3 billion. And that's the first time the the sector's exported more than $70 billion. When we look at our prices for the bundle of things that we export, the bundle of goods, they're they're well above 30-year highs.
1: One of our top farm exports is red meat, $9 billion worth of beef and veal and over $4 billion worth of lamb and sheep meat. But all that is threatened by foot and mouth disease, which Indonesia is grappling with. The federal government has been under pressure to do more. So what has happened this week?
3: So what the government has done is ban the personal import of meat products. So you and me, we can't import meat products of any type from about 70 countries where foot and mouth disease has been detected. Now, it comes with a fine for individuals of $2,600 for not declaring it, and potentially more. They are looking at a higher fine. Now, the Agriculture Minister Murray-Watt says people should not import their personal delicacies, such as pate or pork floss, and mooncakes that can carry foot and mouth disease virus.
1: That would probably be the most likely way it would happen is that, you know, uh, someone might bring in a product that contains live viral fragments. They eat most of that product and they throw you a little bit in the, the scraps bin okay. from one of their animals and then the animal consumes it and then it gets in the animal food chain. Um, we've certainly seen outbreaks occur that way overseas and we want to make sure it doesn't happen here. But China still has a hefty tariff on Australian wine. So the global wine scene is not as rosy as it was. And now Riverland growers in South Australia are being urged to pull out their vines.
3: Yes, we have more than 400 million litres of excess wine sloshing around in Australia. So some winemakers like Accolade, the big company are offering growers financial incentives to rip out red grape varieties. So they're offering $1,250 per hectare to replant with different varieties. So prices are down, input costs are up, and the demand for red grape varieties has bottomed out. Joanne Cole at Barmra in the Riverland is one of those, ripping out her small vineyard.
0: Some of the contractors' contracts don't tell you when you're going to get paid or how much you're going to get paid until about a month or so before it's harvested. So you've spent all this money and investing into the grapes and then to find out you're not going to get much return afterwards. It's a bit of a juggle and a gamble.
1: Just when you think bee biosecurity officers are getting on top of the Varroa mite, a new pest is detected in New South Wales.
3: Yes, this is the first time a honeybee parasite called the Brawler fly has been detected in New South Wales. It's the last thing beekeepers here need. It's endemic in Tasmania and every other continent in the world. And although it's called the Brawler fly, it's wingless and... It isn't a significant pest like varroa, but it is still a problem. It came to New South Wales via hives, illegally moved from Victoria. And Steve Fuller, president of the apiarists in New South Wales, says uh, it damages the honeycomb.
5: The larvae actually buries through the comb and makes tunnels. uh, Yeah, it's just a a thing that makes it look ugly and uh, also can carry larvae from one place to the other.
1: Serena, there's a new ad for wool that taps into our growing interest in natural fibres and fear amongst some of oil and fossil fuels. Yes. And
3: just listening to this ad, you can hear the young people swimming in a pool of black oil, computer generated. It's visually stunning. The pool sits atop a mountain and the young men and women emerge from the black goop and they peel it off, revealing fresh, natural woolen clothes, and then they romp through the forests and the rivers. It's all very beautiful, visually stunning. And the wool industry wants more attention on the microplastics that come off synthetic fibre. And the ad will run in America, the UK, France and Australia. An Associate Professor in Fashion, Alice Payne, says she expects to see more ads like this.
6: It's a really powerful campaign in that, you know, seeing the oil on the people's skin and so on, it really it comes with those kind of connotations of seabirds covered in oil. So we really have a kind of affecting feeling, those fossil fuels, they're from a non-renewable feedstock, they'll eventually degrade into plastics as well.
1: And high school students are being urged to think about a career in agriculture with six jobs for every graduate.
3: Yeah, it's an amazing statistic, really. In 2021, the job market simply exploded and graduates are keenly sought after. So everything from agribusiness to agronomy, scientific research and so on but enrolments in agriculture at university are actually falling. So let's hear from a recent graduate, Emma Shield, who studied agricultural science at the University of Southern Queensland. And she now works with a company in Toowoomba as a seed technician. And she grew up on the beach, but she had a family history in cattle farming. And then she says there are lots of misconceptions about studying agriculture.
2: That it's for somebody that's not smart or that isn't academic, that like you kind of, or that you need to grow up in it. I probably just say that the community of people that are in ag are always incredibly willing to help and they don't care if you don't know anything. They're willing to teach you whatever you want to know. Like I've never had anyone tell me that, no, you should already know this. It's, oh, look, no, we will show you. You want to know this? Let's do it. Let's work it out together. Like everyone is so incredibly willing to help.
1: And Serena, much of the work women do in rural Australia can go unseen, but this week rural women were celebrated with national awards handed out in Canberra.
3: Yes, these are the National Rural Women's Awards and they showcase innovation and achievements from across the nation. Stephanie Trethui from Denorlin in Tasmania took out the national prize for her work creating Motherland. It's a podcast series sharing raw and unfiltered representation of motherhood in rural communities. It profiled over 130 rural mothers, gained 330,000 downloads. And with that success, she launched a virtual mothers group and resource center.
6: You know, more than 90% of farms in this country a family owned and operated and the rural mums are often the glue that holds those households together. They are the linchpin of rural communities across this country, mums like me, mums who struggle. So the fact that so many rural women don't have something, don't have access to something as simple as a mother's group, when it is known globally that social isolation is one of the leading health risk factors, both mentally and physically, to
7: me is just not on.
3: And the winner, uh, Stephen, gets $15,000 to put towards their project. They also get rural leadership lessons and workshops, and it's, it's quite an amazing networking project. And later you'll reveal, be revealing the winner of the ABC's
1: Farmer of the Year Award. I sure will be. Can't wait. And just finally, Serena, a web tool allowing farmers to identify practices that will support threatened birds on their properties has won a Eureka Science Prize. It's been the week of
3: science prizes and prizes all in general. BirdCast was created by the Australian National University's Sustainable Farms Project. It's based on nearly two decades of data collected from southeastern Australia. And the project's lead scientist, Professor David Lindenmeyer, says BirdCast app can predict what would happen if farmers changed some things on their farms.
4: Your farmer might decide that um, they're going to plant uh, an extra five hectares or 10 hectares of shelter belts between their paddocks, we can know what kinds of birds we're likely to get when we do that. And you can use the BirdCast tool to show you where you might be in five or 10 years time. And this becomes really important once we start to move into biodiversity markets and stewardship and certification schemes to be able to help people understand what's the likely outcome of the things that they might do on their property.
3: I think that's vital, Stephen, because I know that our own farm near Wagga, we've noticed that um,
1: bird species have declined over the, you know, 40 years, 50 years that we've been there. Indeed. Serena, thank you so much for bringing us up to date. Yeah, nice to talk to you, Stephen.
8: We all do it. It's one of the basic skills we learn as kids that colour and shape our world. But it's not all rainbows, stick figures and beaming suns. Drawing is also a life skill. And on The Art Show, I want you to join me and the artist Mae Martin as we try to recover the lost art, including tricks and hacks like how to master illusion and capture perspective. The Drawing Board on The Art Show with me, Daniel Browning, Wednesday morning at 10 or anytime on the ABC Listen app.
1: This week, we're heading north to a remote community close to the Gulf of Carpentaria, where locals have a complex relationship with resident big crocs. They're both feared and revered. We'll meet a couple of citrus farmers who've hit on an innovative idea. They've invented a zesting machine that's allowing them to reduce food waste and sell their produce all year round. And we'll chat with a man who's living out his childhood dream, exploring his island home on horseback.
9: I mean, when you're in a car, everything just flashes past you. And you don't see it. And I mean, mind you, on, on a horse, you get to see everything from the rubbish on the ground to uh, every single flower and tree. And it's just, it's, it's really, it's real, really mind-blowing. And especially when you're hearing those hooves just clip-clop along, it's very peaceful. But just feeling the horse under you, you know, and just feeling every muscle so as it it sort of moves it's just it's a wonderful feeling embracing a slower pace of life and enjoying the ride
1: that story is coming up first up we're meeting a couple who have dedicated decades to turning back time they're restoring a former banana plantation to rainforest and providing habitat for threatened species tom forbes has their story
4: it was the 1970s and Walmayer was a 19-year-old living on the Gold Coast when, well ahead of time, he embarked on something of a tree change.
10: Seems pretty weird at the time. I, I mean, I like putting, I like surfing, but I did on weekends go up every valley. I went up Wollomba, just looking for land. And uh, just before my 20th birthday, I, I found, I came up this valley and found this remote spot. I wanted a creek, I wanted it at the top of a valley. And it was wild country, we found it. I went to council, found uh, the owner was an old banana farmer living in Woolen Bar, and uh, I bought it for seven grand, so yeah.
4: That decision to invest his money in an old banana farm here in Austinville in the Gold Coast hinterland set Wall and partner Heather on the path of restoring the bush and bringing back biodiversity.
10: We didn't know what we'd done, we, we just knew that we there was something we had to do with the bush and we had to preserve it, but there was no skills, no knowledge. Heather and I had backpacked overseas for three years and then on our return, we just slowly, we made big mistakes, we started whippersnipping, we started all sorts of weird things. And then eventually in conjunction with the, the, the Land for Wildlife Team and Council, we increased our skills, they increased their skills, we taught each other, we learned more and eventually we became quite productive at um, restoring habitat.
4: Hello, I'm Tom Forbes. I'm visiting this property that has benefited from Wall and Heather's devotion over the past four decades. In that time, they've managed to regenerate the former rainforest habitat, providing a home for threatened platypus and gliders. Heather, wife of Wall, let's start with your property. How much work do you put into maintaining or rehabilitating this property?
7: Look over the years but it's a labor of love and it's so rewarding because what happens is what we're in the beginning you have to be careful you don't bite off more than you can chew so in the beginning we probably got a bit ambitious and you get a bit worn out and then you realize that we break it up into zones tackle one zone at a time and you've got to make sure once you start an area that you go back and maintain it and it gradually you'll go back every couple of months and then it'll be six months and it'll be a year and then that that zone is self-sustaining then you'll once you do that you'll move on to another zone and that way you can it's it's doable
4: to paint a picture we're actually walking through what would you
10: call this this is pure rainforest Uh, it's uh, critically endangered subtropical lowland rainforest so it's it's pretty important pretty special it's a very endangered um, regional ecosystem and we are crossing a little creek
4: with the water running down, and I'm assuming it's a a good habitat for platypus?
10: Yeah, uh, we did a survey, a water gun platypus survey. They did surveys of every creek on the coast, and we saw a record 18 platypus uh, in our creek system uh, last Sunday.
4: Heather, who started the the passion for this property? Was it you or Wolf?
7: Together really well well owned the land before I was on the scene but um, we started doing the work together yeah.
4: and you've got three daughters who've flown the coop but I understand they're still very much connected to the property
7: yeah they love coming back here they uh, come back here to rejuvenate and they say it does something for the soul
4: do you put them to work
7: we try to as much as we can <laughs> not always successfully <laughs>
4: Let's move on to your work, not on this property. You're obviously involved in land care and water gum. Just explain what you do in those spaces.
10: We've got this wonderful community in Austinville. That's, um, and a lot of it revolves around the hall and social stuff. But then uh, 17 years ago, we started a land care group because we had a big weed problem at the lower reaches of the valley. And we've every month for 17 years, we've had um, a volunteer group. And in conjunction with that, we've got grants And I think we've made a a big impact on storing habitat along the creek in the valley over that 17 years. Let's just talk about the
4: recent award you won, the Australian Land Carer of the Year at the National Land Care Awards. Now, you're a humble guy, but but how did that make you feel to be recognised?
10: Oh, it was fantastic. And and, um, yeah, it was just a whole lot of my life just fantastic and you know i really appreciate the people who uh, nominated me
7: i'm really happy for him he really deserves it he put so much work in and it it was just really nice to see that he was recognized for that
4: you won't be here forever what are you hoping happens with this particular property and the surrounds
10: Well, heather and i and our will have, have tried to keep this in perpetuity and we're trying to Keep enough uh, dollars for ongoing management if we can. Um, so we're really keen to to keep it um, going. Um, hopefully there's someone in the family that that'd be ideal. But if there's not, we'll find a landowner who who will keep up uh, the legacy of um, of management because there is a lot of management. You know, there's fire, there's there's weeds, there's feral animals. This is an ongoing thing, and we you need someone passionate who really loves this stuff.
6: So this must be the famous Coda. Hello, Coda.
9: Hello, darling. She's fabulous and she knows it.
6: (laughs) (laughs) How long have you had Coda in your life?
9: Um, This would be her 11th year. So yeah, 10 at the moment, turns 11 in November.
6: Dakota Wolf always dreamed of a life on horseback, but it's only been in the past couple of years uh, that his dream has become a reality.
9: So I've only been involved with horses probably for maybe the last 20 years.
6: Hello, I'm Sarah Abbott. I've caught up with Dakota and his trusty Steve Coda at his hometown of Sheffield in northern Tasmania. Last year Dakota took a leap towards making horseback adventures his full time focus.
9: So I've spent uh, the last 21 years uh, working in the electrical industry around uh, the distribution network but I've uh, recently last year, October, um, took the decision to leave, you know decided that. I'd had enough um, and I'd step back from what I would, I'd been doing all those years and um, just do something very different. And as soon as I uh, sort of made that decision, it just felt like a whole lot of weight, it sort of left my shoulders. It was really good.
6: And did you know then what you wanted to do?
9: Not 100%, not 100%. I just knew that I uh, just wouldn't be uh, doing what I'd been doing for 21 years and um, feeling like I was sort of chasing my tail a little bit. And probably at the end of the um, what I could sort of achieve at that at that level I guess so um it was time for something new definitely.
6: So after having a sit back and think about it for a bit you and Tani started My Life of Trails together which is the website and Facebook page all about trail riding?
9: That that's correct um and that was uh I guess uh, an idea from Tani and I um obviously when I was um struggling in the early days with mental health um, she said why don't you write about your, your journeys, you know, which I was a little bit apprehensive at first especially when she said other people would like to read them um, but as it turned out people did enjoy uh, reading some of the stories um, and I, f- I found it quite uh, uh, uplifting too to sort of reminisce on the, the rides that I'd, I'd done um, but now that website's also got some information on long-distance trail riding and how we would do that, um, and just in a bit of advice. Uh, I, I guess we're hoping it inspires other people to realise their own dreams.
6: And that would be off the back of you achieving your own dream in life.
9: Well, <laughs> since I was a little boy, I'd always dreamed of riding around Tasmania. Because I used to read um, Larry and Stretch books back then, um, and I just imagined that I'd have my little horse and I'd be... Just riding from one town to another, you know, a bit like the cowboys did in the westerns. Um, (laughs) It's not quite like that, and it's not all chocolates and roses, but it's it's all about the experience, and it's the adventure at the end of the day, so, yeah. She's a good girl. As you can see, she definitely loves those carrots.
6: A lot of people i imagine would really love to quit their day jobs to follow the childhood dream how was it that that was possible for you
9: um i was lucky enough to um receive uh, i guess a payout from um, the organization that i was with so that enabled us to I um, least be better in a better financial position i guess um and then sort of take the time to decide what is it that i really really wanted to do so um but i mean tani still um she still works and uh now uh, i i guess uh, we take time when we can together and we go on those little adventures together.
6: You guys now specialize in long distance trail rides. What are we talking about when we say long?
9: Okay, so it could be anywhere from um, you know, 14 days to 30 days in all honesty, so um it just depends. I mean,
6: 14 days is a short one.
9: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So um it's um but again you you you've got to experience it all. Um we went to Flinders Island um obviously uh, when we got married. And we spent 14 days uh, riding around the island, so it was um, absolutely fantastic.
6: So a big attraction of doing those longer rides is the slower pace of life when you're on the trail, just because you're physically moving quite slowly?
9: You are. I mean, when you're in a car, everything just flashes past you. You don't see it. I mean, mind you, on on a horse, you get to see everything from the rubbish on the ground to uh, every single flower and tree, and it's just, it's, it's really it's real, really mind-blowing especially when you're hearing those hooves just clip-clop along you know it's uh, it's very um peaceful so yeah but just feeling the horse under you you know and just feeling every muscle so as, as it sort of moves it's just it's a wonderful feeling
6: it's part of getting out there in the countryside on horseback and meeting people while you do it about showing them that life could be simpler as well
9: um, I guess I've never never really thought about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I look, it's nice meeting people, and you can see the smile on their face, you know, when they meet Koda or Kaliska, you know, and it sort of brightens their day. And My Life at Trails is sort of all about um, bringing light to somebody else's life. Um, so, um, yeah, it's I hoping that other people will sort of see that, and, and you can see it in their face and go, oh, I wish I could do that. And they, they like seeing something very different, I guess. So, um, yeah, to us, it's normal but um other people see it as something um different i guess so or from the past oh, i remember uh, the young fella oh, yeah. when i wrote in the new norfolk <laughs> you know, him and his um dad and his sisters were there and, and he's going excuse me mister are you from the olden days you know so <laughs> yeah what did you say um, i said yes yeah, something like that <laughs>
1: Dakota Wolf, who spends hours in the saddle on his horseback adventures around Tasmania. He spoke to reporter Sarah Abbott. For more on that story, head online to the ABC RN homepage and look for Country Breakfast. There's some footage of Dakota and his horse, Coda, and some of the stunning scenery they've been exploring. It's worth checking out. I'm Stephen Schubert with you for Country Breakfast on ABC RN. Still to come, we'll meet the citrus farmers turned inventors. And love them or hate them, in Australia's far north, crocodiles are part of the landscape. And in one remote community, they're also an intrinsic part of culture and stories, as reporter Holly Richardson discovered.
11: This river has lots of things, which is a dreamtime totem too, you know. In this water here, there are lots of crocodiles and the crocodiles here do have owners of the land.
0: A safe distance from the water's edge, local elder and traditional owner Priscilla Major sits under the shade of a tree. Hello, I'm Holly Richardson. I'm chatting with Priscilla Major here just outside of Cowan Yama, or Place of Many Waters, a remote indigenous community near the Gulf of Carpentaria in far north Queensland. In this community, crocodiles are an intrinsic part of culture and stories, and for local people, the reptiles are to be both feared and revered. If you see
11: a crocodile up there and you get a big shell on the forehead, that is the owner she or he owns this land here. That's the spirit being for the people who have been passed. Former indigenous
0: ranger, John Clark, takes us to another creek, Magnificent Creek, which runs through the town. And last year became famous when a croc approached several kids swimming, forcing them to take refuge in a tree before they were rescued.
12: This is the same creek he came up. He came up and followed the water all the way up. He probably he could smell in the water that there's something up there, so he decided to go up there. But for for that croc to put the kids up in a tree, I'd say it'd be a, it'll be a female one, because when the female one puts you up in the tree, she don't move, she stays there until you drop out. But the male fella, he'll get bored and he'll walk; he'll, he'll swim away. Crocs are moving around. They're our favourite spot that we used to go and drag for the um, food and that sort of stuff, you can't go in there now because there's a big croc sitting in there. Saltwater croc, yeah. We don't mind a freshwater crocodile because we can just um, move him on, but the big salty, he'll put up a fight with you. Sometimes, you know, older people like us, we can go to a water island, and we can actually scent, there's one there and you can smell it in the air. Yeah, you got that sort of smell that comes on the water and you always tell the kid, don't go near that water because there's a big croc here somewhere. They got this sorta of dry sort of smell about him, but it really stinks sort of smell. And you know he's there. He might have had a carcass somewhere and kept it there for a while but um that's probably better. Couple of months old but you can still smell the thing in the in the ground at yeah.
0: Mr Clark says some of this knowledge about detecting crocs isn't being passed on to young people in the community. Priscilla Major says many tourists also don't understand the risk present in many waterways and has seen some fishing and splashing at the water's edge.
11: Those young fellows there were hitting the water and singing, come on fishy fishy, come and get me fishy fishy. I said, "Hmm." You'll die of fright, instead of dying from that animal there, but you'll die with, when you see the shark come, or crocodile grab you. That, oh, I was so angry, I gave it to him. They're hitting the water, it's a vibration. That crocodile can be long way, or shark can be way out in the ocean, they can hear you. They'll come for you all right, and don't say I didn't warn you.
0: She says local people have huge respect for the Minya, or story crocodiles, but that relationship would be forever changed if someone were to be taken.
11: Don't pollute this water. We're going to live with it. We live here. You pollute this water with your blood, your blood going to spill here. We will never be the same. We can't even sit here. Crocodile will be there waiting for us.
0: Further up the creek, near the boat ramp, a group of kids from the local school are out on a fishing trip on country.
13: My name is Shantira David, I'm 15 years old and I'm from Kawanyama. My tribe is Cockaburra and my totem is Black Snake and Stingray. And right now we are at the beach and it's called Topsy. And right in this water here, as you can see this water behind me, it's big crocodile in there, but we call it Big Minya. It's really important that you don't go near the water because when you go near the water, that crocodile, he can see you from miles away and then you want to know if it's coming for you or not because it's in the water and then you'll see it pop up right in front of you and you'll get a big fright. The story croc means that it's the story of the place. The croc is the story of the place. So like. That's a story place too, that's why I got a story minion there, crocodile. Some people tell them it's crocodile. If they have the totem to the crocodile, then it's just like they're a crocodile too. Because when we were babies in our mom's belly, our mom would catch a crocodile or a bear or a snake or whatever we see, and then that's a sign for a baby and then when you have the baby like when every mom's had the baby and they see the animal that's the totem of the baby That's what's the baby in the belly
0: not long ago on a fishing trip shantira says she too had a very close encounter
13: my uncle bring us out for fishing on on a saturday and we were standing in cape number two having a little fish and i was there pulling my line up because i had a salmon on my line and then then as I was pulling my fish up, the croc was coming towards me, but the croc was chasing my fish. And when I seen the croc right near the bank, I got a big fright and I jumped back, ran up the bank and I left my fish in line there. The crocodile went then, I went back down to get my fish in line.
14: I'm just grinding it so I've got a nice big bag of zest that's been dried and then I put it in the mixer to get it down to a powder and then I put it into the grinder to get it finer. Linda DeBone is turning her citrus into a simple but valuable product. That's zest, 100% zest nothing else no pith no juice or no anything else that's it. Linda and her husband Daniel grow limes here on their farm near Gympie
15: in southeast Queensland. For more than a decade they've been adding value to their fruit, making it into a range of lime products that aren't only popular with their local community, but used by chefs and food and beverage manufacturers.
14: If we have the one lime, we would zest that, dry that, blend it with Australian sea salt to make our lime salt, juice that same lime to make our cordial. Way back when we went, okay, if this keeps going, we'll actually go to the zesting machine shop and we'll buy a zesting machine, but they don't exist. So then we thought, well, we'll see if we can make one.
15: G'day, I'm Jennifer Nichols. They say necessity is the mother of invention, and it certainly led Linda and Daniel down the path of making their own zesting machine. They keep it in a room under tight security. No photos are allowed. But today they proudly showed me their latest working prototype.
5: This is our probably our eighth or ninth prototype now.
15: You've got security cameras and audio recording in use, so it's high security now. <laughs> I can tell you one little secret, that it's got two areas for limes to drop into. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
5: yeah, yeah. So it's a double machine. You don't do them one at a time. But this machine, we can produce around about 20 kilos of pure zest a day now, if we want to run it every day. So it's pretty good. We're the only people in the world producing it at the moment.
15: This is a really big deal, isn't it? Because I came here years ago now, I think it was 2016, and you were still trying to get it perfected, and here we are in 2022.
5: And we're still trying to get it perfected, but (laughs) we've come a long way now. Yeah, this machine's pretty good. I started originally with a little hand prototype. And then from that we went a bit bigger and some people in the States helped us. But that's a while ago now, that was a little bench top machine. This thing weighs probably five, 600 kilos. When you finally got
15: a prototype that was working, getting the zest off the lime without the pith,
5: what was that feeling like? Oh, pretty good because now we've got two products. It's usually a waste product, it just goes into landfill or to animal feed. So now we're getting um, a product that's actually a lot more valuable than the actual juice itself. So it makes it worthwhile. You can actually be price makers instead of price takers for once? Yeah, for once. um, We have to set a reasonable price on the zest, but we've got um, purchases all around Australia now. We ship it pretty well to every state. We've got distilleries and breweries are our main ones, but we've got a few more food manufacturers coming on board, which is pretty good.
14: It is quite diverse where it can go, and we're still learning. (laughs) Yeah. So um, it's going well, though.
15: And this all came out of the fact that you looked at the lime market and realised that you were on a fighting to nothing.
5: Oh, yeah. If we were just selling limes wholesale to the market, we would not be here, I think. I really had to get into something different and we were just sick of seeing so much going to waste every year when the prices were low, because we were just dumping tons and tons of fruit. So uh, that's where we thought, no, we've got to get into something different and start valuating and trying to get as much value out of the one piece of fruit as we can. Twenty
14: years ago was when we started planting limes. When we did start planting, like the people that had the same amount of trees as us, they were doing a really good income, like, oh yeah, that'll be great, we'll be getting a great income like these people. And like I said, 2007, the writing was on the wall. More people were planting and the prices were going down. Thought, yes, our options are either value add or go off farm for jobs. So we started making our products in 2010.
5: Now probably 5% of our market is fresh limes. That's about all we sell. And that's just to regular restaurants and bars that we've had for years now. Everything else is value added. We pick the fruit and depending on the size and the quality, it either goes to slicing for drying if they're really nice and big but good condition they go to drying. Premium quality goes to the restaurants. The next quality goes for zesting where we actually zest it and then we juice it. We put it straight into the blast freezers so the zest goes in probably every 15 or 20 minutes on trays at minus 40. And the juice is just being constantly juiced as we're going along. And then at the end of the day, Linda and I bag it all up in the vacuum sealed one kilo lots, and off she goes. All our value-added products are going out as much as we can make them, which is pretty good.
15: So you've got salt, you've got cordials, you've got soda drinks.
5: Yeah, our bulk now really is in the wholesale market, I guess, that we're selling more of the zest and the actual 100% straight juice to larger manufacturers. Uh, So less customers, but bigger orders. But, yeah, we still keep going with the salt and the cordial. They're our mainstay. We've got a lot of regular customers, especially locally for those. How many trees do you now have? After the floods, probably about (laughs) 1,200. We're probably... Maybe 1,500, yeah. The fresh fruit doesn't last, unfortunately. That's why um, it is difficult. You, You know, the market runs out pretty quick when the fruit dries out. But what we do changes all of that. I mean, the zest is frozen. It can be frozen for 12 months. The juice in bulk, we can actually freeze that. We put that into deep freeze and that's good for 12 months. And then um, we can still keep selling all year round. But yeah, like I said, it just makes it a lot more valuable than just juicing the fruit.
1: That was Daniel Tabone from Suncoast Lime speaking with Jennifer Nichols about his top secret zesting machine. Before that, Holly Richardson visited Cowan in far north Queensland, where she spoke to locals about the crocodiles that are all calling the region home. You can find more on those stories and all the stories you've heard on today's program. Just head online to the ABC RN homepage and look for Country Breakfast. The first experiment. Yeah, I- has all grown up? Should we call them old people? Can our teenagers and older
7: folk find common ground? I'm very lonely. I don't see anybody anymore. And help change each other's
11: lives. You should
7: learn a TikTok, a TikTok. Jim taught you that you should do the most you can in the little time that you have. Mind the generation gap. TikTok. Old people's home for teenagers. You're amazing. Tuesday nights on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView.
1: Imagine this, a once wild river that millions of people rely on is in severe drought. Communities along its length attack each other, with downstream towns blaming upstream irrigators and communities for taking too much water. No, I'm not talking about our own Murray-Darling Basin. If you saw a foreign correspondent on Thursday night, he was looking at the Colorado River in the US, and there are many parallels to our own water issues here. Barbara Miller is the ABC's North America correspondent and joins us from our studio in Washington, D.C. Barbara, thanks for joining Country Breakfast. Thanks for having me. Can you just refresh our memories for those of us who haven't been lucky enough to see the Colorado River? Where is it and where does it flow?
2: So the Colorado flows through seven US states and I'll list them, hopefully I'll not forget one. It's Colorado, obviously, it begins in the snowy peaks there, Wyoming, Utah, um, New Mexico. Those are the upper basin states. Uh, the lower basin states are Arizona, Nevada and California. And technically, the Colorado flows out into the Gulf of Mexico or the Sea of Cortez, but it hasn't really flowed out there for many years now because because of the problems uh, that it's facing. Uh, 40 million people in those states rely on the river as well as uh, the people of 30 Native American tribes.
1: Right, so that is a huge river. How long does it
2: run? It runs 14,50 miles, which is about 2,300 kilometers.
1: Just how low is the Colorado River at the moment?
2: Well, the way that we measure that is to look at the levels in the two reservoirs. So what happened with the Colorado was beginning with the Hoover Dam. So it was constructed in the 1930s. They decided that the the river was out of control to some extent, there was flooding, and that if we harnessed the flow of the mighty river, it could be used for irrigation, for hydropower. So the, the Hoover Dam was built and the dam wall created what's called Lake Mead, uh, which is not really a lake, but it it was a man-made lake. It's a reservoir. Then further up the river, uh, about 30 years later in the 60s, the Glen Canyon Dam was created, was built, uh, a huge, like more more than 200-metre high wall, and behind that, Lake Powell, was created so essentially the area behind that dam wall was flooded and it's the levels on those two reservoirs that are really uh, ringing the alarm bells I think throughout the US so what's happened on Lake Mead at Hoover Dam uh, in the past months is as the water levels go down to levels they haven't been at since before it was flooded or since it was being flooded uh, the secrets as I call it the secrets of the river are emerging. And those include several bodies, one of which was um, found in a barrel. Um, So that's uh, raised all kinds of speculation Mm. that this was some kind of Vegas gangland uh, killing. Uh, Those are being investigated. When we were there, uh, we saw boats that obviously had at one point been sunk and were now re-emerging as the levels fall and all kinds of junk. Like I saw... I saw beer cans there, which reminded me of my youth, you know, just the branding (laughs) and the brands. I thought it's like, you know, walking back into the 1980s to come here. So it's that kind of imagery and, of course, talk of dead bodies and possible murders that... I think really has, has hit home with people as well as what you see on these two reservoirs is they call it the bathtub ring. So you see the hot, where the water used to be. You see the mark um, where the sediment, you know, there's a change in sediment. So there's like a white, huge white ring all around the reservoir. And you can see where the water used to go up to. So there's real concern about the levels on those reservoirs Mm. because if they go too low um, there's a a concept called dead pool and that's when the the water is so low that it can't flow downstream and it can no longer produce hydropower.
1: What is grown on the river? Is it used to uh, irrigate high water intensity crops like cotton and rice like the Murray-Darling is here?
2: It's certainly used for cotton and alfalfa, which is a a hay, alfalfa hay, which is used in feed. So we, um, one of the people we spent quite a bit of time with was a farmer in Arizona. And it's complicated, but it's the farmers in Arizona that so far are doing it toughest in terms of the water cuts that have been imposed along the river basin. And of course, we said to him, well, you know, what, what are you growing this water intensive crop for? And his answer is, well, okay, show me what other crop I can easily grow here. This grows really well here and it's really profitable for us. And to some extent, it's what I know. He was His uh, family had been farming in that area for five generations. He had a, a baby boy and he, he hoped to pass on the business to his son. But he was recognising, and we, we also went... Um, to a local bar with a, with a, a young farming friend of his, they were both really recognizing that perhaps that way of life couldn't continue. So I, I think there are real parallels with some of the conversations that go on in Australia there because they see it as we are feeding and clothing the world with these crops, be it the feed for the, the dairy industry in this case or the, or the cotton, you know, that that goes into clothing production. And yet we're always the scapegoats. We're always the ones at the bottom of the chain who people say we we can do without. That was a very strong feeling that that he expressed to us. His name was Jace Miller.
1: What about other industries? I mean, the Colorado is the river in the Grand Canyon and there must be a huge tourism dollar spent on, on the river too.
2: Yeah, there's a huge uh, tourism industry. So, um, in the program, the foreign correspondent program, we um, we go river rafting. We did that with the Hualapai, which are uh, they are a tribe, and their reservation runs along part of the. The Grand Canyon, um, they're worried, obviously, about what the falling river levels and and the guy that took us out on his raft, he'd only been doing that job for a few years. And he said in in that time, he was noticing big changes in the the levels of the river. And, you know, he was pointing out to his look last year, that bit was so low that we had to, you know, we had to actually carry the boats um, uh, over that patch of river. So they're worried about that. In Vegas, obviously, that Vegas is a huge... Um, tourist spot as well. They get about 40 million visitors a year, but interestingly, Vegas um, actually has quite a strict water savings program.
1: In your reporting, did you get any sense that there's any way to resolve these tensions between different communities on this river? And are there any lessons that we can learn here in Australia where we are facing similar issues?
2: I think so. One of the people we speak to is called Professor Jack Schmidt. He's a a river scientist. He's been, you know, monitoring the river for decades now. And the way he puts it is that there has to be some kind of resetting of society. And he talked about agriculture and he said it's really hard to look anyone in the eye and say your way of life can't continue but there are limits. People have to recognize that there are limits. And I suppose the lesson to be learned, and I don't suppose it will be learned, is he talks about the river like some kind of um, checking account. So, um, you know, you you pay in in the good years um, and then you take out you know, there's there, there's water there in, in the bad years. But the trouble is because of the 20-year drought in the southwest, because of the um, impacts of climate change, and because from the very beginning for over a century now, or, or exactly 100 years actually, there was an agreement made, the Colorado River Compact, um, where the states agreed how much water everyone could take out. Now, that was flawed from the beginning. People, they, they base their calculations on on an unusually wet period and that was before climate change um, began to have an impact before the Southwest's mega drought. Um, so I guess the lessons are you can keep avoiding the crisis till the last minute, but it will keep coming and we're, we're dealing with a, a warmer, drier l- land and planet. And that it, if, if people are to survive and that there has to be some Reset, which um, is tough. It's very tough. I got the sense from from Jace Miller, uh, the farmer, and his his friend Jerry Turner. I think they're going to hang on till the absolute end. I, I don't think they're going to say, "Okay, well, this isn't working." They, they will get zero allocation of Colorado River water. They think from next year, they still have some groundwater, but they don't think they'll get any Colorado River water. But I, I don't think they'll go until they have to. So. So what's the lesson? The lesson is that we don't, we don't really learn lessons very well, but it, we are dealing with aridification there and um, something's got to give.
1: Well, it was a fascinating episode of Foreign Correspondent and it's all available on iview. Barbara Miller in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much for joining us on Country Breakfast. Thank you. Diversity and innovation on a traditional merino wool enterprise in the New England region in northern New South Wales has seen Michael Taylor announced in Canberra Parliament House as Farmer of the Year. The farmer has changed his long-running family operation up a bit, introducing new enterprises and making others more sustainable. Lyra Webster visited the Taylors' property to find out more. Since the 1840s, the rolling hills
16: of Michael Taylor's farm have produced super fine merino wool. It's a tradition the sixth generation farmer has carried on.
8: You know, I could see from the work my parents had done on the place that there was definitely a lot a lot of value there. And, and look, it's pretty hard to deny the sense of place here as well. But, um, but the, the wool industry is 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 really fascinating and 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 we know that natural fibers are are really important so we've we you know we feel passionately about um being able to continue to produce you know natural fiber and and if we can produce it for for customers that are really interested in what we're doing with the land that we grow it on it's it, it it keeps us going
16: To ensure the survival of those traditional roots, he's diversified into forestry and tourism as well, shoring up the farm to survive well into the future. It's this diversification and commitment to looking after the land that's seen him recognised as Australia's Farmer of the Year.
8: Huge surprise, I'm sure it is for (laughs) most farmers that get nominated, but look, it's it's really nice to get the recognition, but it is, um, straight away I was thinking of of all the farmers I have looked up to over the years and, uh, and the farmers that still inspire me. So, look, very lucky to get a nomination, but yeah, it's, it really is a team effort. All, all of this is earmarked to, to, to.
16: As well out. as farm stays, the biggest shift in the Taylor's operation has been a move into forestry. The seeds for the trees were planted by Michael's parents, Vicky and John Taylor, in the 1980s to replace those lost to dieback.
17: We've always believed in our family as it came down the generations. We talked about how the land was something that we had. It was, uh, it was our tools of trade. And uh, the idea was that with each generation we'd use it to make a living, but we'd try and leave it in better shape than, than uh, when we each started on it. So um, it's nice to have Michael getting so involved and, uh, and to see him being rewarded for for the efforts he's put in to um, create a better environment on the farm and uh, get it it operating nicely.
16: In the decades since, the family has planted more than 200,000 trees, which have in turn provided shelter for livestock and biodiversity. They've also become an important part of the business, providing an income, which became particularly important during drought. Michael Taylor invested in a sawmill and harvest logs which are now sold across northern New South Wales.
8: Having been through three droughts now, (laughs) and one of them would be, you know, close to a record-breaking drought for our family in the 180-odd years that the Taylors have been on this land, the first severe drought in 2013-14, we came within two months of running out of water, you know, groundwater or surface water. So it was always in the back of my mind that if we had to, Sell all our livestock or just them elsewhere, we, we, we knew already that we could run the sawmill and, and pay, pay wages, you know, have, an, have an income, continue you know, doing something. <laughs> producing off the land when, when there was and, and again, in 2019, we'd managed our stocking rates very differently, so um, we'd reduced our numbers quite early. But to know in the back of our mind that if the drought continued, we were always going to have the timber. Uh, enterprise there as a backup.
16: He's keen to tell his story, regularly sharing the benefits of farm forestry, running field days, and hosting tours.
8: Sharing and 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 learning from others is a really natural part of of what we do here. There's always somebody that will have have a comment or an idea or a suggestion or or, or, a, or a question that will make you think, and I think that's you know the biggest thing about running a farm is, is to keep learning all the time. There's still s- so much that we're we're still trying to understand and now, now we're understanding how important the ecosystem is to and you know ecosystem services and biodiversity on farm and you know to support production and in turn support the family and the community.
16: His parents are proud to see something they started evolve into something bigger. Now to be able to walk through the forest here gives us yep. enormous
17: pleasure. On a cold windy day you can, we can walk through the forest. There's things of interest everywhere that that have come from all that, that work over the years.
16: And this isn't where it ends for Taylor's Run or the Farmer of the Year.
8: I wouldn't call it a static uh, set up in, by, by any means and I think Future generations will have, have their own ideas of how they do things. And I hope they, I hope they do have new ideas to, to enhance what we've got here.
1: Australian Farmer of the
8: Year, Michael Taylor,
1: from northern New South Wales, ending that story from Lara Webster. And you can read more about Michael's story on the ABC Rural website and watch it on Landline on Sunday. Well, that's the show for today. I'm Stephen Schubert in Alice Springs. Country Breakfast was brought to you today with the assistance of Kath McAloon, Serena Locke and Matthew Crawford. Stick around for more great listening coming up here on RN.